Hello, everyone, and welcome to Energy Security Cubed, one of the world's foremost energy security podcasts presented by the CGAI, or Canadian Global Affairs Institute. I'm Kelly Ogle, Managing Director here at CGAI. And I'm Joe Kalnan, Fellow and Energy Security Forum Manager at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Ellen Wald, CJAI fellow and author of Saudi Inc. to talk about Saudi Arabian motives and regional relations during the current Middle East crisis. But before we dive into that, I'll have a quick discussion with Joe about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things with you, Joe? Oh, I'm doing fine, Kelly. Lots of stuff going on. So uh, I'm constantly just uh, refreshing Bloomberg and Twitter to see what is happening in the world. Yeah, you have to be current. So what's in the news? Well, oil is in the news, Kelly, and uh, we'll be talking quite a bit about that on the podcast with Alan. Uh, but uh, I'd like to just cover a few stories here before we jump into a bit more of the detail. Uh, so the disruption in the Red Sea and the wider Middle East is starting to have some real consequences in the oil market. Brent crude oil prices hit $83 per barrel on Tuesday. They since paired a bit of those gains, but it's uh, still uh, elevated from where it was last week. So this is due to a few developments on both demand and geopolitical risk. On Tuesday, the IMF released an updated estimate of global economic growth of 3.1% in 2024, 0.2 percentage points higher than previously anticipated. This is largely attributed to unexpected economic strength in the United States, the world's largest consumer of oil. Meanwhile, the continued disruption in the Red Sea is rewiring oil flows once again, as shippers avoid the Red Sea. We saw a huge rewiring of the global oil market after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, so this is just a uh, another component of uh, what seems to be the poly crisis, I suppose. So refined fuel costs in Asia are now rising, Indian fuel exports to Europe are falling, and Chevron is looking to reroute Kazakh oil destined for Asia around Africa rather than brave the Red Sea. So these are all things that started developing after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Normally, it would be, you know, uh, the Suez Canal, it wouldn't be affecting Asia this much. Uh, because, uh, you know, you wouldn't have so much Russian oil going through the Suez Canal to supply Asia. But this is all very new stuff. So now Suez Canal very relevant to Asia. So to make matters worse, on Sunday, three U.S. soldiers were killed and more than 40 injured in an attack on a small U.S. base in northeastern Jordan, near the border with Syria and Iraq. While the United States has not directly identified who carried out the attack, it is broadly thought to be Iraqi group Kataib Hezbollah. Of the Iranian axis of resistance, militant groups Kataib Hezbollah has among the closest ties with the Iranian state. The group's founder and commander Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis was trained by Iran and worked closely with the IRGC's Quds Force since 1983. Al-Muhandis was killed alongside the head of the Quds Force, Qasem Soleimani, by a United States airstrike in January 2020, and I think uh, most of you will remember that event. Yeah, many analysts think that the deaths of both al-Muhandis and Soleimani eroded how much control Iran was able to maintain over its proxy groups in the region. Both were very skilled politically as political agents, and they had deep ties in the region. Nonetheless, following the, this attack, Ta'avib Hezbollah announced that it would 
cease attacks on U.S. forces, citing the desire of the Iraqi and Iranian governments to ratchet down tensions. Such an about-face is likely the result of Iranian pressure to prevent the situation from spiraling out of control. Unfortunately, the United States is virtually obligated to respond to this attack, but targets, their scope, and timing are to be determined. As we will hear from Ellen in the interview, the United States has few economic levers to punish Iran and its proxies, which leaves only military options on the table, which is, uh, you know, I, I watched President Biden last night say there will be a response. It's possible, though unlikely, that the U.S. could directly attack Iran. Among possible targets, if the U.S. chose to escalate are Iran's nuclear facilities in the Zagros Mountains, its oil export facilities in the Persian Gulf. This development would likely be the start of a hot war between Iran and the United States. Boy, I hate saying that. A more likely response are proportional strikes on Kataib, Hezbollah in Iraq. It is unclear, however, what these strikes would accomplish for U.S. goals in the region. <laughs> Interesting, Joe. It's not good, eh? I mean, you got to wonder, you know, what really are the U.S. goals in the region? Well, we talk a lot about that with uh, Ellen. And, and let people make their own decisions and try to go out and find more information because it's obviously, uh, this is a literally hot topic. What else, Joe? Well, I think uh, we should talk about oil prices as well. Yeah, it's the end uh, of the month again, right? It yeah. sure is. This podcast will be released on February 1st, so I think it'll be a good opportunity. Uh, oil prices are significantly higher from where they were a month ago. We largely attribute that to rising tensions in the Middle East. Uh, while we started January with Brent crude oil prices around $76 per barrel, today we are looking at $82 per barrel. On that note, yeah, I'd like to dive into our predictions for where February will take us for oil prices. So last month, we both guessed around $80 per barrel based on rising demand expectations from the economic resilience of the United States. So we were pretty close. The prices are a few dollars above $80 per barrel, which was what we expected. Uh, what are we thinking, though, for next month? I'm kind of in this band between 78 and 83. That could change dramatically with something more kinetic, but I'm going to stay in that 78 to 83 range for February. You? I think I'm actually going to, I think I'm actually going to guess $85 per barrel. A little bullish, more bullish, eh? Yeah, the I old think, pessimist himself. Yeah, I think um, there's significant chances that this keeps going in a bad direction. The uh, issues with transporting fuels, like the question is just how far can you push the uh, global tanker fleet? And then uh, what effect would that have on pricing for Brent crude, at least? And uh, of course, the economic situation. I heard a podcast the other day, and this is the Wall Street Journal uh, morning briefing podcast, that a court in Hong Kong determined the uh, you know final solution for the Evergrande issue for uh, China, Chinese real estate. And it could cause kind of like a, a, a resolution of how bad things can get in China in terms of, uh, you know, the Chinese economy. So I think there's big questions here about how the Chinese economy goes, like whether it's actually bottomed out or not. But I just think that demand is going to continue outpacing expectations here. I think everybody uh, was anticipating that demand for oil would start to mellow out a little bit more than it has. And I, I think we're going to keep seeing high demand for oil and combined with that continued issues with supply. We'll see. Got anything else? 
our last story before we switch over to Ellen Wald, uh, I think we'll talk about the Biden administration's decision to pause approvals for a slate of LNG export facilities. So last Friday, the White House announced that they would be pausing approvals for permits to export liquefied natural gas to non-free trade agreement countries. In a statement, U.S. President Joe Biden justified the decision on the grounds of energy costs, energy security, and the environment. However, the decision was framed mostly around climate change, with Biden claiming that, quote, this pause on new LNG approvals uh, sees the climate crisis for what it is, the existential threat of our time. The move is broadly seen as an attempt to get climate-focused Democratic voters back into the fold in advance of the election in November. Final decisions on what the LNG project proponents need to do for certification are therefore not expected until after the election, leaving these projects in limbo. Projects with a combined liquefaction capacity of 23.7 million metric tons are expecting a decision in 2024 and will now have to wait until 2025. This will also come with the judgment of an administration with a new mandate, whether that be Donald Trump or Joe Biden. So this development raises big questions about the role of the United States in the long-term supply of LNG to Europe and Asia. Several of the projects that have been put on hold have signed substantial long-term contracts with European and Asian customers. For instance, Venture Global's huge CP2 project, for example, has signed a 20-year supply deal with German utilities ENBW and SEFE, as well as with Japan's Inpex and JIRA for a total of 3.75 million metric tons per annum for Germany and 2 million metric tons per annum for Japan. Because of, the, of this, a letter from American, European and Japanese business groups have protested the decision, asserting that the U.S. should play a role in meeting forecasts for strong global demand for the coming decades. The winners and losers of this decision are generally clear. The LNG exporters in other countries, like Canada, as well as U.S. LNG exporters who are not affected by the decision may, may benefit if some or all of the delayed approvals are eventually rejected. These exporters stand to benefit hugely if the U.S. limits its role in LNG exports. Now, however, countries that import LNG may be faced with a more difficult situation as a market which many anticipated to be flooded with U.S. LNG becomes much more uncertain. Decision makers in these countries may want to diversify away from natural gas as an energy source with the cheapest solutions, especially in South and Southeast Asia, being to pair coal with solar. Well, it's not really an easy pair to make, but they can talk about it. Natural gas producers in North America may also be squeezed. Without additional export capacity, natural gas in North America will be bottled up and could drive gas prices lower. On the other hand, natural gas-fired power plants in North America may benefit as the main costs are reduced. I would like to add, Joe, that this morning, you know, there's been quite a bit of the climate uh, argument saying that this is great because it'll push, make Canada, the, the Trudeau government act like the Biden government. But the statement out of the out of Anarchan uh, uh, today was, or yesterday, was actually quite, uh, I would say, positive for uh, ex exporting LNG in, uh, from Canada. Uh, with uh, Energy Minister Wilkinson stating that his understanding is that Biden is attempting to integrate climate considerations into American LNG export policy. And I quote, Canada has been doing that now for several years. Wilkinson told reporters after a cabinet meeting in Ottawa, he pointed to methane regulations and emission standards, such as using clean electricity due to the liquid action, as examples of what Canada is now requiring from LNG export projects. Isn't it nice that the federal government understands how we're doing it here in Alberta? 
and BC and, and looking to benefit from Article 6. I see this as a positive development for Canadian gas in, in the global trade. Joe, how about you? Yeah, I, I can see it for sure as uh, potentially a positive development. And like like I said, uh, like the you said, uh, the uh, the idea that, you know, non-US LNG exporters stand to benefit here as well. So places like Qatar and like Australia, you know, th- these are kind of established LNG players and they might be able to get better prices on uh, their own contracts and on their own spike spot pricing and things like that. Uh, the question is, can we actually get together the will to uh, take advantage of, of this sort of opportunity in Canada? Can we actually get uh, get things together to make more LNG projects? And that's uh, a whole other question. Okay, Joel, that's great. Thanks for these. Thanks for figuring these things out for us. Yep, not a problem at all, Kelly. And uh, to our listeners, before we jump into the interview, uh, please subscribe to the Energy Security Forum newsletter if you're interested in these stories and more. It's just a great uh, you know, thing that I put together, basically my reading list for the week on uh, all things energy and energy security and just security in general sometimes as well. I throw things in like that in there. So you can subscribe at our website and get it delivered into your inbox every Wednesday morning. Great, Joe. Let's go talk to Alan Wald. For today's interview, which was recorded on January 30, 2024, we discussed the positioning and role of Saudi Arabia amidst the ongoing war in Gaza and Operation Prosperity Guardian in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden. And as well, uh, as was noticed this morning, there's big news out of Saudi Aramco. So we're going to talk about that too. Yeah, with us to discuss this, and we're really happy to have her on again, is Ellen Wald, CGAI Fellow, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and co-founder of Washington Ivy Advisors. Really good to have you back, Ellen. It's um, always fun. And uh, how's the weather there in Florida? You know, it's uh, it's actually a bit chilly for uh, what we're used to. I'm uh, I'm down in South Florida and uh, I'm, I'm wearing a, a winter sweater. That gives oh, there sense. you go. You're probably about the same as here. Looking at my uh, screen, it's 11 degrees Celsius in Calgary today. Like, Well, let, the people don't want to talk about weather. They want to hear you talk about the Middle East. And let's start with some lay of the land where it comes to tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which look to be ratcheting down before the beginning of the war between Israel and Hamas. Ellen, in your mind, what were some of the reasons for why tensions between Saudi and Iran have been elevated in have been so elevated in recent decades. I know you've written a book on this, but um, and I've read it with great interest, but maybe you could just help people understand a little bit the tension that's been there since the 50s. Sure. I think it's important to understand that um, Saudi Arabia and Iran are not um, you know, mortal enemies. This isn't like this is a kind of centuries-long feud going back to, you know, ancient times or anything like that. For the most part, I would say, you know, whatever was going on in Saudi Arabia, whatever was going on in the Persian Empire, they, they were kind of mostly for a large part, I would say, ignoring you know each other. It wasn't. We're not talking about some kind of um, reigniting the Sunni-Shia conflict here. But um, and and even in the in the 20th century, you know, in in the 70s, um, definitely before the Iranian 
revolution, Saudi Arabia and Iran were often on the same page when it came to oil policy, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, there was, in fact, one instance when the Saudi oil minister was um, kidnapped by terrorists who they believe might have been acting on behalf of, of Palestinians, but also probably not. They were like French anarchists as well. And both the, the Saudi oil minister and the um, Iranian oil minister were like kidnapped together or taken hostage together. So, um, you know, there, there are all sorts of interesting kind of uh, tidbits here. But um, certainly the two tensions between the two definitely um, became more pronounced after the Iranian revolution. Um, Saudi Arabia was um, took the side of the um, of Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war. Um, there were issues in terms of there was a big tanker war uh, at that point. You know, this is all during the 1980s and, and the Saudis funded the it helped fund the Iraqis uh, and so forth. So, um, they definitely were not big fans of the Islamic uh, Republic and of Khomeini's regime, um, particularly because sometimes the um, Iranians would kind of call them out as not being, you know, champions of Islam sufficiently and, and so forth. Um, kind of fast forward, though, to more recent times, um, some of the tensions that we saw coming up between Iran and Saudi Arabia have more to do with um, Saudi Arabia's political push for nationalism. Uh, that was definitely a big, a big component of it. Um, prior really to, to the past several years, honestly, Saudi nationalism was not a big thing in Saudi Arabia. In fact, the nationalistic the concept was seen uh, as something that really was in conflict with, um, you know, with with Islam. So it was almost like any kind of like loyalty to the, to the state was almost like seen as like kind of an idol worship. So um, it was never really a big deal. Yes, everyone was loyal to the king, but they didn't have this sense of like Saudi Arabia as a nation state. It wasn't like they ever had like Fourth um, of July. Well. In, in the United States, we have like right. 4th of July and there's patriotism and people feel this kind of affinity for their country beyond necessarily whoever's the current leader uh, and whatnot. And that something was really beginning to be cultivated, I would say, um, during the during the Obama administration and <laughs> during that period of time is when we first saw like uh, Saudi flags and this color green. And that's become more and more pronounced. And as that's become more and more pronounced, it was kind of helpful to imagine Iran as like the counterpoint. So we are the Saudis and we are arrayed against Iran and Iran is dangerous. They're developing a nuclear weapon and this could threaten us. And they are this, you know, kind of rogue country. And so really tensions, I would say, have kind of skyrocketed during that period. And there was very much this push in Saudi Arabia to identify, um, you know, negative things as Iran. Iran is trying to hurt us. Iran is sending missiles against us. You know, we have to shore up our own sense of nationalism in contrast to that. And that's also part of how this conflict with Qatar got started, because Qatar was seen as on the Iranian side. So that was a big thing, but also a component of that was the um, development of this um, Houthi regime in Yemen. And the Saudis definitely saw that as a direct threat to them, um, not just because um, from a, you know, Islamic kind of fundamentalism perspective, um, the Houthis are like, they are technically Shia, but they're not the same kind of Shias as the Iranians are. Um, I don't want to say that they're like halfway between Sunni and Shia because they're not, but it's it would be like saying um, 
I think a really good um, uh, comparison would be saying like the Houthis um, and are kind of like Coptic Christians and Iranians are like Catholics. You know, they're kind of in the same boat, but they're or in the same ocean, but they're they're doing very different things. Um, and so for the Saudis, um, they really saw the Houthi regime as a direct threat. Um, and in fact, the um, when the Houthis were firing missiles at Saudi targets and really threatening Saudi, uh, first of all, their Saudi uh, refinery that was being built in Jazan, which is really very close to um, to Yemen. Um, they could threaten that. They could threaten important ports uh, on the um, western side of Saudi Arabia. And they even threatened Riyadh. I mean, there were missiles that landed not far from the airport in Riyadh. So, um, so they definitely saw the Houthis as a direct threat. Um, the Houthis initially were not getting uh, weapons and support from Iran. That was something that really developed later, despite what how it was portrayed. I think there was a big effort by the um, Yemeni government that was overthrown, and also the Saudis to portray the Houthis as basically an Iranian proxy. And they weren't really until later. <laughs> that mm -hmm. They didn't actually become a proxy, I think, until later. Uh, and that's when they started getting like more weapons and more supplies. And, and it's, it is well known. It has been well proven. I think the UK captured some kind of a unmanned aircraft at one point that basically um, had where the memory was not wiped and it basically had images from um you know um IRGC headquarters in it so you know the the connections are now well established but it didn't start out that way um and so so you know in Saudi Arabia so they definitely see this as a threat there was a, a basically a war and the Saudis and the UAE and the Emiratis tried to basically overthrow and oust the Houthis they did a terrible job at it and didn't succeed and it became this kind of quagmire that they were involved in and ultimately um the Chinese kind of brokered a um, I don't want to say a truce so much as like a ceasefire. And um, they're all kind of happily, um, you know, kind of <laughs> ended hostilities. Yeah, there's some really good insights there. And I, I really like the idea that, uh, you know, it's Saudi Arabian nationalism that that in, in many ways is, uh, you know, the, the big shift in these in these sort of bilateral relations. But a lot of other details there that we're going to touch on in, in further detail uh, throughout the podcast here. So great, great uh, explainer on that. But sticking with the the Yemenis for now, uh, I just kind of want to know like the the, um, you know, the kind of genesis of the conflict between the Saudis and the Yemenis, because uh, for the longest time, like Saudi Arabia and Yemen, I, I believe, had fairly close relations. But it's only been after the, the rebel movement, like the uh, the Houthis, uh, some people know them as Ansar Allah, you know, uh, various different uh, ideas about what really they represent. Uh, so they th this uh, conflict between the Saudis and the Houthis started in earnest in 2015, although, you know, it, it's always been, you know, on the on the thing ever since the Houthis started arising and the I believe they started going about in the early 2000s am i right yes i would i, I that, that i think it's it's a little bit complicated where exactly they came from but I, I most of what i've read would say that that's that's probably correct we're talking mm -hmm. we're talking early 2000s but didn't really become more known until like what we call the arab spring yeah no okay that makes sense the arab spring really seemed like it uh it overturned a lot of the stability that had been there before and uh, we'd, we'd have a whole episode on the arab spring which you might do sometime in the future but um so with this intervention uh, in yemen would you say that this was part of a saudi uh nationalizing mission like turning into a nation or was it 
started by the Houthis? You know, what what really precipitated this uh, intervention? Well, I think um, I, for some, there, there are some people who claim that Yemen should actually be part of Saudi Arabia. So um, I think that it's pretty clear that the, this, that the Yemeni culture and, and whatnot is, is quite distinct from, from Saudi culture. Even the, the dialect of Arabic they speak is, is different. So, um, you know, it, it'd be hard to make that case that they really belong to Saudi, to Saudi Arabia, but there are definitely those who, who really believe that Yemen should be part of Saudi Arabia. Um, to me, what the issue seems to be more that Saudi Arabia supported the government of Yemen before you know the, the previous government, and so when they were and, and they were trying to keep them in power, and when they were overthrown, you know they they therefore became anti Houthi, and um, and I think the other issue is that um, a lot of people think that the Saudis, because of the type of Islam that they uh, you know, have practiced in the kingdom for many years, it's quite a kind of austere, or many people might call it fundamentalist, that they therefore agree with all Islamic fundamentalists. And that is not at all the case. For the Saudis, the Houthis represent a real threat, just like Hamas is actually a threat to Saudi right. Arabia, and Hezbollah are a threat to Saudi Arabia, and ISIS is a threat to Saudi Arabia. These are all groups that want to overturn the status quo mm -hmm. in the region. They want to overthrow the leaders. Yeah, so, so it's an ideological yeah. threat more than just a military threat. Yeah. Right. So, so Al-Qaeda was a huge threat to Saudi Arabia because mm -hmm. they want to overthrow the, the status quo. And the Saudis are the status quo. I mean, this is a, a kingdom. This is a monarchy. This is an absolute monarchy that has been run by the same family since its modern inception. Uh, and so having a group of firebrand, um, you know, fundamentalists or, or Islamic fundament or, or this, this firebrand group right on their border that just overthrew the status quo government is really scary for them. And so that is is one reason why the kingdom, the monarchy, supported the the government that was the, the previous government, and why they ended up how they ended up getting involved in this anti Houthi, you know, um, fight. Let's go down into the weeds a little bit and talk about um, some of the the kinetic things that have happened. And, um, most people that are listening would be aware that the Houthis in Iran have periodically attacked Saudi oil infrastructure over the course of the Saudi in intervention in Yemen. And this includes the 2019 Bukak Karas drone attacks, which temporarily disrupted uh, Ramco's oil exports by an incredible 5.7 million barrels a day. And I apologize for butchering the name of that mm -hmm. uh, battery or uh, refinery. Or uh, so it's up, Upcake and Horace. Upcake, okay. Upcake, yeah. In the recent past and in the going to be soon future do you see anything like this happening uh ellen is are we looking at more of this kind of stuff do you think so that's a really great question you know to what extent uh, are these is the risk for kind of escalation or threats to oil infrastructure in the region um to what extent is it a real threat um i think that we have seen a real threat to the oil infrastructure known as the suez canal uh because essentially the suez canal is unusable and uh because of that um, 
most uh, most passage through the the Sumed pipeline, which basically runs like parallel to the Suez Canal, is also unusable. Except if Saudi Arabia wants to ship oil out of its port on the western side, most of Saudi Arabia's oil is shipped out of the Persian Gulf. That's where most mm -hmm. oil production is. But they have something called the East-West Pipeline System, which runs from the west to the east, or can it can go it can go either way, and um, so they do ship products, they do ship, um, you know, crude oil out of uh, other ports on the Red Sea. Um, and so um, they can, you know, either ship it out of the Red Sea and then go into the um, Gulf of Aden, et cetera, or they can go up to the Sumed pipeline or the Suez Canal. Um, they're one of the few that, that actually can do that. It can't accommodate all of Saudi Arabia's uh, oil, but it can accommodate some. So um, so that's, that's kind of an interesting fact. But um, so we're definitely seeing threats. I think that um, the attack on Abqaiq and Horace really um, exposed weaknesses and um, that especially these like unmanned, you know, drones and, and the drone technology. And we do know now that Iranian drone technology is quite sophisticated. And it's clear that this technology is not just deadly to, to people, but is also capable of, of, in, of infiltrations and attacks that can disrupt. I don't, I wouldn't know, I'm not, I'm not totally up on the latest drone technology. I don't know how, you know, it, it was clearly very disruptive to Aramco, though much less disruptive than was initially feared. They were able to get things up and running um, pretty, pretty quickly. In fact, a lot more quickly than people thought. But um, the question is, could there be a worse drone attack? And I think that, um, it's possible. I do think, though, that um, Saudi Arabia, since it was attacked with these missiles from Yemen, um, has a you know anti-missile system or, or whatnot. I'm not sure if it's exactly like the Iron Dome technology that Israel uses, but it's somewhat similar. And so they may be more um, aware of the potential for these attacks and paying better attention to um, you know securing their oil facilities. Um, and, and whatnot. So I would definitely say there's a heightened risk, but it does seem that the majority of the threat right now is at sea. Uh, and it is that, and it, it's both the Houthis attacking ships transiting, you know, the Red Sea. Now, um, we've seen a huge drop in this. So, um, you know, if everybody stops going through the Red Sea, who are the Houthis going to attack? <laughs> Either we could see the attack shifting to become, you know, more threatening, or the Houthis could say, hey, look, we, uh, we, we made our point. We attacked them yep. so badly that, you know, they're gone now. We won. Rah, rah. Let's, you know, let's call it a night. Um, because one of the things that I think it's very important to understand is why the Houthis are doing this. They're not doing it because they think that it's going to get Israel to withdraw from Gaza and some sort of support for the Palestinians. Uh, they, they, they don't care about the Palestinians. It's not really on their their radar. What they do care about is looking good to their people because every group like this that's kind of a, a revolutionary group needs to promote and perpetuate their revolution. Um, you know, they're not in the business. They're not running for election. They're not, you know, they're not making commercials and, and showing people how great they are and kissing babies and, and, and that way. But they've got to get the support of the people. And one of the ways to do that, if you are a fundamentalist revolutionary group, is to attack the enemy and show how you are, you know, sticking it to the enemy. It's one of the reasons that um, they kept shouting death to America in Iran over and over, because mm -hmm. it was a rallying point to get people behind this new revolutionary government was to say, 
America is the big bad Satan. Let's all get up and march against them. And you notice that shortly after these attacks began, um, there were, was a massive like demonstration or march or gathering of support for these Houthis in um, in the capital. So um, it's definitely serving a purpose. And it's a very, as, as I've called it before, it's a very um, low risk, high reward activity for the Houthis. Because first of all, they don't really care if they lose some people in this process. They attack ships. They don't even have to do that much damage to the ships. They don't even have to kill anybody. They can, and they, they do something. It comes up on the news. They announce to their people, we attack the great, you know, Satan um, ship full of crude oil that was clearly going to help the evil Israelis. And, you know, and none of this even has to be true. Okay. But um, they look good for their people. And um, it doesn't require that much effort on their part other than some missiles that they're getting from Iran anyway, which is why I think it is becoming so difficult for this coalition to make a dent in what's going on, because um, they have to make it so that this activity is not so low risk for the Houthis. And how do you do that? Well, it may involve attacking them on land, destroy not just, you know, beyond just destroying where these things are coming from, but really getting to the source. It's a basis of it's a it's an absolute basis of geopolitics. But this is the trade routes and the a lot of the, and those that control the seas is the basic it's the fundamental understanding of how this whole this whole thing this whole understanding of geopolitics was built. So Yeah, no, it's it's interesting, like kind of like a dichotomy here where I feel as though you know the Houthis have a mandate for Islamic revolution, and they they maintain their legitimacy through fulfilling that mandate. Whereas the United States kind of has a mandate for protecting the uh, freedom of navigation, and they get the the legitimacy of their international leadership through defending that. So kind of both sides of this have kind of their legitimacy in question. So I think uh, you know it's it's going to be tough for either to back down here. I think. I, I just want one other uh, point. I think that when um, I think that once um, once it really hits um, Chinese shipping, we may see some real pressure exerted on Iran and mm -hmm. then therefore on the Houthis, because, um, you know, one of the big issues is that they weren't attacking, you know, Chinese and Russian ships. But once it just becomes too expensive to get insurance or they can't, you know, so, so here's a, here's an interesting factor. And I didn't know this until recently, but um, because uh, you think that American liquefied natural gas produced in Texas ships out of the Gulf of Mexico goes to Asia through the Panama Canal. That mm. makes sense, right? Turns out the Panama Canal has had horrible congestion. They've been having droughts and ships can't get through. And they these LNG tankers are sitting waiting for so long that they found that it was better to go through the Suez Canal. So mm -hmm. literally go around the other way to, to get to China and Japan, et cetera. So, so they were, and the Suez Canal noticed this and they were actually in 2023, they offered these LNG tankers a discount to go through the Suez Canal. Mm -hmm. Like come through us, we'll, we'll give you a discount. That discount is now ending in 2024, but also now it's too risky to go through the Suez Canal. So now they're going to go all the way around, um, you know, the, the, they're going all the way around the Cape of Good Hope. So, uh, you know, the question is, when is China going to feel the pain? Because they can exert pressure on Iran and say, cut it out, you're hurting our international trade. I think that is one way that they could end this conflict. Um, I'm not sure that 
China is there yet, uh, because mm -hmm. it's an awful lot of pain that China would have to feel in terms of the pricing for international shipping. And so far, I don't think that Chinese shipping has been impacted quite that much. Um, China is one of um, you know, the major trading partners for Iran. Um, and so, you know, it's not like the U.S. can exert more economic pressure on Iran. They've already done what they can do with sanctions. There's nothing else they can really do unless they really start enforcing this. Now, it also depends on what Iran does in the Persian Gulf. And I do think the risk in the Persian Gulf is a bit heightened. Uh, we've definitely seen Iran um, kind of have its eye on some ships and some uh, some some oil tankers and and whatnot. Um, but it's not until there really is a larger threat towards uh, passage through um, you know the Persian Gulf that I think uh, we'd we'd see real pressure. It's it's a very I think it's a very it's a very complicated and confusing. Um, time here. Uh, and I know there are people saying that the U.S. has to put some real pressure on Iran. They have to, you know, show Iran that, you know, this is not a, a you know, a risk-free, you know, operation that they're they're going. They need to hit them and, and show that they mean business, that they're not going to let this just keep escalating willy-nilly. And then there are other people that say, look, Iran's not the, the fish you want to deal with, just deal with the Houthis. I'm I'm not going to say which is better. Thankfully, I'm not the one making the decisions, but I can definitely see, I, I definitely can see how um, Iran is in the picture here and um, could definitely exert pressure or at least stop sending them so many missiles. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's the ideal. Is uh, you know Iran decides to stop supporting all of these groups that are destabilizing the Middle East, but it doesn't seem like they're quite there yet. Uh, but turning back to you know the issue in the in uh, the Red Sea and the uh, Gulf of uh, Aden, uh, so um, and uh, we'll just quickly cover these last two questions before we uh, wrap up here. I'd like to look at Saudi Arabia's views on the American-led Operation Prosperity Guardian, which we've already talked about a little bit here. So this is the naval operation that's looking to safeguard shipping through the Red Sea uh, by compelling Houthis, not deterring Houthis, because you can't deter. <laughs> And attacks that are already happening, compelling the Houthis to cease their attacks. So freedom of navigation to the Red Sea, like in my opinion, it should be in the interest of Saudi Arabia and the other uh, Arab Gulf states, uh, since a substantial portion of their oil, of course, transits a passageway to reach their customers in Europe. Uh, however, of the Persian Gulf states, only Bahrain has joined the operation. And of course, Bahrain is the host of United States Central Command. So it's like, I, I believe that it's kind of, uh, it's you know, complicated. Uh, yeah, it's a complicated situation. But uh, since Saudi Arabia has had this historical, you know, issue with the Houthis and it has deep interest in freedom of navigation, why hasn't Saudi Arabia joined in Operation Prosperity Guardian? Yeah, I think, I, I think the reason is really that they, they can't afford to get back into any kind of a ground war or an air war or a sea war with, um, you know, with Yemen and and the same with the UAE uh, because they were they were jointly, you know, in these these operations and the UAE basically bowed out first. They're like, we're 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 out of here. <laughs> we can't mm -hmm. do this anymore. And so I think that they are trying to protect that at all costs, and they want to. They don't want to violate this ceasefire that they have, and they don't want the Houthis to send missiles towards Jazan, towards Riyadh, towards, um, you know, other other areas there. And so uh, I do think that, you know, um, covertly they have provided, they've, they've given this, uh, they've given their approval or their okay to the 
um, you know, to the the international coalition, but they're not going to join in. This is just it's not it's not something they can do. It's something they could take. And frankly, it's not clear that that's really needed. That would be I think it would be more of a symbolic gesture uh, as opposed to, um, you know, providing real naval support here. I mean, come on, we're talking about the United States and Great Britain. They want to put a lot of ships there. They can put a lot of ships there. Before we go, and this sort of happened, just it's imminent, happened today, that Saudi Ramco abandoned a plan to boost its oil production capacity, which is a huge reversal um, that will raise questions about how the kingdom views future demand. Um, the surprise move comes after the world's biggest oil exporter said in November that it was progressing very well with a multi-billion dollar project to boost capacity of 13 million barrels a day by 2027 as demand in China and India continues to grow, according to some opinions. Um, it, you know, it's well known that Saudi Arabia currently has capacity for 12 million barrels a day, but is producing probably, Ellen, correct me if I'm wrong, between eight and nine million yeah, barrels they're, a day. Yeah, they're at, nine right now, I think. Yeah, after it curbed output as, output as part of uh, OPEC plus efforts to revive the oil market uh, and prevent surpluses. Um, do you want to talk about that a bit? Like, I'm sure that you've been called today to talk about this because it sort of <laughs> contradicts some of the narrative that that's been out there but i think at the same time maybe it speaks to different maybe societal pressures in saudi arabia than than people are aware of would that be a fair comment uh no actually <laughs> i think i think that a lot of people have this wrong i think you have to understand what the meaning of um saudi spare capacity is and uh the term that they use is msc which stands for maximum uh, maximum sustained capacity. And the definition of MSC is um, the maximum, the, the, the maximum capacity that can be, that a Ramco can produce at for one year, if given three months to get to that level. So yeah, that's, um, let's just stop there for a minute because people, <laughs> I've been talking about this for 30 years and the real, what real sustained capacity means. And just say that again, uh, Ellen, because people talk about the per Permian providing uh, spare capacity. No, no. no. The, the, spare capacity the, isn't isn't just barrels of oil in the ground. It's your ability to produce them. And no, there, there's no such thing as spare capacity in the United States. Producers produce what they're producing. And it's not like they're, you know, saving stuff on the side. Saudi Arabia has essentially the is is the one country that has they're the, the most only place that spare has capacity. spare capacity yeah. in the world right yeah and they and they view that not as something as as an economic or financial issue that is a national security priority to them and they view their spare capacity as something that is key to their national security and their geopolitical position and the reason is Saudi Arabia doesn't ever want to produce at 12. Aramco definitely doesn't want to produce at 12. They can, and they showed the world that they could when they did in April and June of, of 2020. So they can do it, but it is not a desirable thing for them to have to do. It puts a lot of stress on the, the fields and the reservoirs that they don't want to have to do, but it's something that they can do. And they see it as an important, they, they need to maintain this buffer as a way to kind of maintain their geostrategic relevance. So for example, and also for them, say 
you know, they say upcake is taken out or say there's danger in, in another field or production is taken out, they can compensate through these other areas so that they can continue to provide petroleum. What if there's a war in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia is needed to provide oil for, you know, whoever's fighting that war? Well, that might be a reason that they would access their MSC because they see that it's a, it's necessary for them to supply their allies. Or what if there's a natural disaster somewhere that takes out, you know, production elsewhere? They could step in to, to use that if they saw it as a geostrategic or economic uh, uh, value. But um, one of the interesting things, if we think about what happened in 2020 when they did decide to ramp up to 12, is that once you're ramped up to 12, then you don't have any more spare capacity. What if, and, and I raised this issue at the time and I didn't, perhaps did it rather indelicately, mm -hmm. um, but I think it was a, a good point nonetheless, which is that what if Iran had decided to attack a Saudi oil field when they were producing at maximum spare capacity? Then they have nowhere to go. And so they lost that buffer. And it was a day after they made the decision and coincidentally, I said something in public about that, that they announced, we're going to raise our spare capacity, our maximum spare, our maximum sustained capacity to 13. And so I think they realized that, that they need this buffer and that it's very important for them in a geopolitical sense, less so as a like, we want to produce at 13 million barrels a day because like we want to sell these barrels and we want to maintain our, you know, we want to push other players out of China. That's not what it's for. Their ability to manipulate the market lies right now in, in this world that we live in with their ability to flood the market with oil and depress prices because mm -hmm. they can cut production all they want and they're not going to, you know, starve anyone from oil. This is not 1973. Mm -hmm. Like, but they're so the more spare capacity they have, the better their ability to threaten to flood the market and tank oil prices. Right. It's the other side of the of the equation. Yeah, they can. That happened in 85. Right. Like, I, I remember that clearly. It's happened before. Oh, yeah. It's uh, so. So my point is, in the, they're deciding not to do this anymore, deciding, hey, this is this is not our directive to Aramco anymore. And Aramco is bound by it. This is a pair. This is like a, a decree. I think it shows that they no longer see that they need this this buffer because Iran is not so much a threat to them. They're they're on better terms. I wouldn't say they're buddies, but the Iranian embassy is reopened, and so they're on better terms with Iran. I think they don't think Iran's going to attack them. Um, they and and it may be that Aramco sees a much better outlet for these this money that they're spending. It's a big capital expense in expanding their downstream. I, I think that we might hear at their next um, annual meeting that they're putting more money into downstream expansion. They are making a killing importing Russian crude and turning it into products and selling it to Europe, assuming it can get through the Suez Canal. Um, <laughs> right. You know, so why why not allocate that money to um, you know to better better areas? They don't necessarily need to just produce and sell crude oil to make money in, in oil and energy these days. I, I also believe that they are looking into expanding their natural gas production. Right now, all the gas they produce basically is almost all of it is associated natural gas. 
but they've got a lot of natural gas reserves and natural gas is a highly profitable enterprise these days, especially liquefied natural gas. And that's not really something that they do, but it's something that they, that they want to do. And so my sense is that they don't really see a need to expand to 13 million barrels a day. And so why do that anymore? Mm-hmm. I don't think that they are, I don't think this says anything about where they think demand is going or where, or how they're trying to manipulate at prices now. That has no matter because they were never going to produce to 13 anyway. Mm-hmm. It's a threat that yeah. they have. It's a, it's like a trump card that they hold. It's yep. not something that they would ever do in a normal circumstance. Yeah, it's kind of like the you know the deterrence and compellence thing, you yes. know, like you don't, you don't want to have to use <laughs> yeah. this weapon because it's going to collapse. Like Russia, you better stay in our group because we can always produce 12 million barrels yeah. a day and tank your oil prices and your economy. So, you know, stay in line. <laughs> they don't need to necessarily do that anymore. Russia is, you know, is not interested in getting out of OPEC plus. Well, yeah, very interesting, uh, very interesting discussion there, Alan. And uh, I really like digging more into, you know, Saudi Arabia's motives and because it, it really is an interesting, uh, you know, security partner and, you know, economic partner to the United States uh, in the region, because so many times it's been actually explicitly an economic kind of um, not enemy, but definitely hasn't been on side with U.S. economic policy at many times in the last 50, 60 years. Which, by the way, is interesting because the Saudi real is pegged to the U.S. dollar. So they really should have an interest on in being on the same side, at least when it comes to monetary policy. And they're, they're never going to depeg. They can't because they'll have massive no. inflation. Um, so it's 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 very interesting how how this it's it's a very complicated relationship. It's 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 you know, it's not just they're not friends. They're not allies. They're not enemies. Uh, but they're not exactly they're they're sometimes strategic partners, but sometimes sometimes not. <laughs> One last question for you, Ellen, and uh, this is a question we always ask our guests. Uh, what are you reading these days uh, for fun, hopefully, not just uh, <laughs> not just, you know, reports and, yeah. uh, you know, heavy books and the like? Yeah, um, let's see. Um, most of my reading these days is um, consists of cardboard picture books. Uh, <laughs> we're big fans of Steam Train, Dream Train right now. Uh, but I would say for myself, um, I recently started a collection of short stories by uh, Maggie Shipstead, who is na- uh, the, the title of which I cannot recall. And... Um, for work, I will admit that I've mostly been reading, um, rep- uh, my most recent reading has been a very long report on um, uh, wind uh, turbines, uh, particularly offshore wind turbines, and uh, an assessment of their economic viability uh, in Denmark. Very interesting. Well, what's the takeaway? Are they viable? The takeaway is that um, any wind turbine that um, is supposed to produce above one uh, megawatt is not really viable because the larger wind turbines break down at such an incredible rate that it is economically unviable to maintain a uh, offshore wind farm beyond uh, the the 10-year mark and certainly by the 16-year mark. Well, let's put, Joel, put it up on the show notes. I'll try to send you the link uh, to, to these reports. Great, Alan. Take care now. All right. Have a great, have a great afternoon and uh, looking forward to speaking again soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. 
You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.